0: DW Inside Europe
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up on today's programme, Moment of Reckoning, the sexual harassment scandal that's polarising Spanish football. Greece's Prime Minister believes it's time for a rapprochement with Turkey... He
2: did want uh, the amelioration of relations, and that's something that goes back since the beginning of this century when I first met him. The fact that he was able to get this victory sort of unties his hands. Previously, he had little leeway. His foreign minister, his the head of the army and others were, you know, very much hardliners.
1: And can Germany's embattled coalition government turn things around in time? That and so much more coming up on the programme. Mm-hmm. Now, Spain should, of course, have been in jubilant spirits following the national team's hard-fought victory over England in the Women's Soccer World Cup. But, sadly, it's what happened after the final goal was scored and the crowds had left the stadium in Sydney, Australia, that has hogged the headlines ever since. The head of Spain's Soccer Federation, Luis Rubiales, has faced a barrage of calls to resign after he forcibly kissed one of the players forward Jennifer Hermoso, as the team celebrated their tournament win. The women's team are now refusing to play until he is replaced and the incident has sparked a preliminary sexual abuse investigation. Rubiales, however, remains defiant over what he says is a witch hunt, as Nick Martin reports. This is the moment the president of Spain's
3: soccer federation, Luis Rubiales, knew a storm was brewing. As he walks to an awaiting vehicle, a reporter asks him if he's worried about the controversy he caused by kissing player Jennifer Hamoso during the team's trophy ceremony on the lips without asking permission.
4: No, nothing. This is a moment to be happy. We just won the World Cup. Within
3: hours, however, images of the offending kiss were leading every news site and news channel
4: around the world. The Spanish Football Federation president, Luis Rubiales, has caused shockwaves across the sport and beyond. He refuses to resign despite kissing the player Jenny Hamoso.
3: Hamoso's comments at a news conference sparked the controversy as she stated that she did not expect nor enjoy the kiss. Other players and women's rights groups rushed to her defense saying what should have been one of the best moments in her and the other players' lives had been overshadowed by sexual assault two-time German Women's World Cup winner Nadine Angerer was among those to condemn Rubiales for overstepping the line. You just won a World Cup. You worked such a long time for this moment. And then in the biggest event for women, everybody speaks about one man. And I feel so sorry for the whole Spanish team, but particular, of course, for Jennifer Hamoso, it's absolutely disgusting what happened. After initially labelling his critics as losers, Rubiales tried to quell the controversy with a video recording apologising.
4: We saw it as something natural, normal and with no bad faith at all. But outside it seems that a commotion has formed. And of course, if there are people who have felt damaged by this, I have to apologise. I can also learn from this and understand that when you are the president of an important institution like the Federation, you need to be more careful. His message
3: failed to dampen public anger, with government ministers next to step in demanding his removal, including acting Deputy Prime Minister Yolanda Diaz.
5: I was really ashamed. A country and a world like ours shouldn't tolerate macho
1: behavior. The impunity with which Mr. Rubiales expressed himself shows that the Spanish FA is plagued by a deep structural sexism. I truly believe that we as a country should have prevented her from the damage that she's been suffering.
3: Rubiales had insisted that Hamoso had lifted him off the ground, took him in her arms, and that he'd asked for a little peg which she'd agreed to. Hamoso issued a statement on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter denying those claims. Her response has been translated and is read by a DW journalist.
6: I feel obliged to declare that the words of Mr. Luis Rubiales explaining the unfortunate incident are categorically false and part of the manipulative culture that he has generated. I clarify that at no time did the conversation to which Mr. Luis Rubiales referred to take place and that far from it was his kiss consensual. I feel the need to denounce this fact because I believe that no person in any work, sports or social environment should be a victim of this type of non-consensual behaviour. I was asked to make a joint statement to reduce the pressure on the President. I told the Federation that I would not make any kind of individual or joint statement on this matter. Despite my decision, I have to state that I have been under continuous pressure to come up with a statement that could justify the act of Mr Luis Rubiales.
3: At an extraordinary meeting of the Spanish Football Federation several days later, Rubiales refused once again to quit. No
0: voy a dimitir. No
2: voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir.
3: No voy a dimitir. dimitir. His defiance prompted several members of the Federation's Assembly to walk out in disgust, while the Liga clubs, including Real Madrid and Barcelona, issued statements denouncing their president. Later that day, the entire Women's World Cup winning squad said they would not play for the national team again, while Rubiales remains in his position.
6: Jenny, hermana, aquí está tu manada. Rubiales, oh, fuera de...
3: The controversy has also spread to the streets of the capital, Madrid, where hundreds of women's rights supporters turned out in the colour purple. At the time of recording, Rubiales has been suspended by soccer's world governing body, FIFA, while the government has launched legal action to remove him from his post. Spain's top prosecutor has opened a preliminary sexual abuse investigation into the forced kiss. Rubialis's supporters, meanwhile, have described the incident as overblown, while his own mother staged a hunger strike over the inhumane treatment of her son. Former German national goalkeeper Nadine Angerer said the controversy will help the new generation of female players to stand up against similar mistreatment. The solidarity worldwide is with Jenny Hamosa they see that the most experienced players, they fight for an even better future for women's soccer. That something like this is never going to happen again. Nick Martin, DW.
1: Historic rivals, Greece and Turkey, are stepping up efforts to improve ties after the country's leaders received strong election mandates this year. Next week, Turkish and Greek foreign ministers are scheduled to meet in Turkey, but analysts warn substantial obstacles remain between the neighbours. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul.
4: Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis's landslide election victory in June is seen as allowing him to pursue his long-term goal of rapprochement with historical rival Turkey. You are, you are On the sidelines of the NATO summit in Vilnius, the two leaders met, pledging to work towards improving ties. This Monday, the Greek foreign minister, Yorgos Garap Eteris, is scheduled to meet his Turkish counterpart, Hakan Fidan, in the latest rapprochement effort. Professor Alexis Heraklidis of International Relations at Athens-Pathion University says Mr Takis has already used his election victory to remove hardliners like foreign minister Nikos Dendias to help his rapprochement goal
2: call it his secret agenda, but he did want uh, the amelioration of relations, and that's something that goes back since the beginning of this century when I first met him. The fact that he was able to get this victory sort of unties his hands. Previously, he had little leeway. His foreign minister, his the head of the army, and others were, you know, very much hardliners. So this is almost a golden opportunity for him to do his thing, I mean, to, to really take matters into his
1: hands.
4: Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, after his re-election in May, also replaced his foreign minister. Newly appointed Hakam Fidan is widely regarded as a skilled diplomat. Some analysts say, with elections behind him, the Turkish president is in a position to tone down his nationalist rhetoric, which is popular with his electoral base, and may be receptive to Greek overtures, says Hussein Baja, head of the Foreign Policy Institute, an Ankara-based research organisation.
2: The government, uh, of course, will be uh, much more cooperative I think the issues, non solvable issues will continue, but uh, rhetoric uh, will be much more uh, slow-down rhetoric. But, uh, both sides will uh, try to find a common ground and uh, approach to each other in a civilized way. <laughs>
4: The Aegean and Mediterranean seas remain flashpoints for the Greek and Turkish navies as both countries search for what are believed to be large energy reserves in disputed waters. At the same time, the island of Cyprus, divided between Greek and Turkish Cypriot communities, continues to be a potential point of tension. Analysts say an improvement in bilateral ties could remove an obstacle to the sale of American jets to Turkey.
2: There is no greater honor for the elected leader of the people who created democracy than to address the elected representatives of the people who founded their country on the Greek model
4: and have promoted and defended democratic values ever since. Last year, the Greek Prime Minister, addressing the United States Congress, called for the Turkish jet sale to be blocked. The sale has been delayed in part over Washington's concerns about tensions between the two NATO allies. But given the history of failed attempts, observers question how long the efforts by Turkey and Greece to improve ties will last. Mediterranean security analyst Aya Buella.
7: I mean, you see these wonderful pictures coming
8: out. Everybody's like you know smiley, nice photo of I think in three months, six months, we'll see who's you know if, if people are going to go back to their baseline, you know it's you know it's like in a horrible marriage, you know there's a little honeymoon period, and then everybody goes back to who they really are.
2: Oh,' that going no!
4: Hopeful signs include Greek and Turkish leaders' decisions to refrain from angry rhetoric after incidents like the recent flare-up of tensions in Cyprus over construction of a road in contested territory and the announcement of new Turkish drilling for energy sources in the Mediterranean. Takis and Erdogan are expected to meet on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in October and let's say the two leaders aim to hold a summit later this year in Greece. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul.
1: Just a quick reminder of our feedback address. Do get in touch with us for any comments or ideas that you might have for the show. The address is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now, all eyes in the German political commentariat were directed towards Schloss Meseburg this week, a castle outside of Berlin, as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz attempted to use a two-day retreat to get his fractured cabinet back on track. With the economy slowing and the far-right RFD party on the rise, the stakes are pretty high. So I called up DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow to find out how things had gone in the castle.
8: Meseberg, which I've been there many times myself, that's the place where the government coalition, not only this government coalition, but in general government coalitions in in Germany tend to meet when there are problems. Uh, You could say it's somewhat like the place where they meet to have their family therapy when they do not necessarily see eye to eye on different issues. And that's certainly the case now with this three-way a three-party coalition in, in Germany, led by the Social Democrats with the Greens and the pro-business uh, Free Democrats, so the FDP. And we've seen in recent weeks, one problem after the next, one issue where they discuss and where they have different views after the next. And that's why essentially they've come together in Meseburg Castle, which is, by the way, a very nice uh, castle, to try behind closed doors to resolve some of their biggest differences.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you say, this has been the political story almost since the beginning of the coalition, the coalition hasn't it? Sort of gridlock because of the competing interests within the coalition's makeup itself. I mean, there have been so many stories and I don't want to get too sort of, you know, niche and, and, and domestic policy-y, but maybe we could just pick one of them, uh, heat pumps. Maybe you could just use that as an example of how a good idea ends up running into sand because of the different interests at stake?
8: It's not only heat pumps, uh, some other topics that have been very controversial in the last few weeks, even in the last few days, the issue of child allowance. That's also a very big topic here. And in that particular case, we saw a big difference between the finance minister, Christian Linder, who's a member of the FTP, and Lisa Paus, the family minister, who's a member of the of the Greens. And that required not only a lot of conversations between them, but also even mediation by the chancellor himself, Olaf Scholz. They met in the chancellery, uh, I think, four times in order to try and uh, discover where they could find a compromise, where they could find uh, ways of working together. And just ahead of this meeting in Meseberg, they did indeed come to an, an agreement. And something that's important, I think, to stress, maybe for those people abroad, is that this was never going to be easy for Germany's coalition. This is the very, very, very first time that the German federal government has a a coalition made out of three parties. And that essentially means that you have three parties with three very different positions, with three very different interests. And you also have a chancellor who's got, let's say, less power than if you were a chancellor in a two-party coalition. So basically you have Olaf Scholz as a chancellor trying to mediate between those different interests. That has badly affected his own image and approval ratings that has badly affected the approval ratings of all three parties uh, in that coalition. And it has basically meant that there are growing calls here in Germany for the Chancellor to really step up and be more present and show his leadership, show his leadership style, make sure that he's the one also guiding these discussions. And that's also something that uh, we've seen in in Meseberg. One of the goals of this was precisely to not only get those three parties together and see where they could compromise, but also to have a Chancellor that is much more present, because that's one of the, I would say, strongest criticisms that have been levelled against Olaf Scholz, the fact that he, in many cases, hasn't shown the necessary leadership when it comes to resolving some of the internal problems that the coalition is facing.
1: So we've got prolonged gridlock at a a governmental level and we've got the far-right RFD party stepping in to fill that space. Um, If Germany were to vote tomorrow, uh, polls suggest that 20% of Germans would vote for the RFD. So it's quite a serious situation. Um, Do you think that there's an awareness at a government level of just how high the stakes are at the moment. I mean, do you think that that sense of urgency has got through to the people that were uh, meeting in uh, Miserberg this week?
8: I think it has gone through not only because uh, they've realised how that has affected their approval ratings here in Germany, but also because you see that there are certain problems here in this country that are becoming more and more serious, if you ask several experts. Only one of those topics that we're discussing a lot here in Germany in recent weeks and months is the economy. And you obviously uh, are aware that the economy plays a very significant role in in Germany's uh, international standing, in the role that Germany plays abroad in many, many different topics. In other words, you could say that Germany's economy is one of the key elements that makes Germany an important country internationally. So I do think that there's that sense of urgency uh, clear from the government's perspective. If you look at it from the parties within the coalition, I think they, they face a dilemma because that dilemma is, on the one hand, they realise that they need to find compromises, that they need to work together. On the other hand, they also need to present their own proposals. They need to profile themselves in a way that in some cases goes against what the other parties are also proposing. So that's why you see all these controversies and all these difficult situations in the coalition. Um, I'm not very good at uh, making any um, announcements as to what could happen in the future. I'm terrible actually at that. But if there's one thing that, that analysts do point here in Germany is that the problems in the coalition are not going to end simply because they meet two days in the Meseberg castle. In other words, that the next problem is just around the corner uh, where the three parties will have to find uh, ways to compromise and where the three parties will also try and see how they can profile their own interests while at the same time finding a compromise to make the government actually work
1: subjectively, you know, from the perspective of someone who is, um, you know, living in Germany and consuming German media and having conversations with German people, there seems at the moment to be a real sort of national feeling of malaise, a sense that Germany is sort of the sick man of Europe. Do you think that that feeling really is in the air? And if so, what on earth could be done to change it? I mean, does it really all depend on the economy?
8: I don't think all depends on the economy, but a lot depends on the economy here. And I do think that there's this feeling in the air that things are not going in the right direction. That's, by the way, something that you also see in several polls, that there are concerns among Germans as to what direction Germany is going on now, that there are concerns about the economy about the political leadership, about polarisation in the country, about widening divisions in the country. Those are all issues that are certainly worrying and that you sense also in conversations that you have on a day-to-day basis. When it comes to this idea of the sick man of Europe, uh, this is also something that's being discussed widely here in Germany in the last few days and in the last few weeks, but I would uh, be a little bit more cautious there, especially if you compare Germany with other international countries with other parts of the world, Germany is still doing fairly well. There are problems, there are issues. The economy is not in a good state, but compared to other parts of the world, I would certainly say that the situation is not as bad as maybe uh, it's being portrayed in, in certain media outlets. That said, I do believe that there are problems that are very difficult, that are very urgent, that are very necessary to be resolved. It's not only uh, the broader aspect of the economy, but it's about uh, digital infrastructure. It's also about this issue of polarisation, which is really a big problem in in this country. The widening gap between rich and poor, the issue of social benefits in Germany of poverty. Those are all issues that are really concerning for, for Germans and that you also sense when you talk to many people in this country. But again, I would really... Say we have to be a little bit careful when we use that uh, that idea of the sick man of Europe. The situation is difficult, but it's maybe not as bad as that description may make it sound.
1: DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there, the nicest person ever to break bad political news. If you have to hear it from anyone, then let it be him. Yeah, it is that time of the programme again. And we have another quiz question for you. I actually came up with this one. So I really do hope that you'll play along. Uh, The question is in the form of a quotation. The quotation is, to understand Europe, you have to be a genius or French. Who said that? Was it Jacques Chirac, former French president?
5: What do you want me to go
2: back to my plane and go back to France? Is that what you want? Then let let them go.
1: Madeleine Albright, former US Secretary of State.
6: America is strong. Our principles are ascendant and our leadership both respected and welcome in most corners of the world. Or Boris
1: Johnson, former British Prime Minister.
3: I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to thank my rival friend uh, opposite Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. <laughs>
1: If you think you know the answer to that question, then head over to Spotify, click on this week's edition of the show and take part in the poll. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up over the next half hour, Inside Europe, Outside Europe. What happens when European narratives intersect with the stories of other peoples and continents? We'll be taking a roundtable deep dive into the EU's attempt to counter Wagner influence in Africa, meeting a Nigerian refugee from the war in Ukraine, and finding out why some Central Asian countries are rewriting their history books.
0: Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe.
1: This week it was reported that the EU is to launch a new mission to West Africa in the autumn, with police and soldiers deployed to Ghana, Togo, Benin and Ivory Coast. The stated reason behind the mission is the EU's concern that Islamist groups could extend their reach from the coup-swept Sahel region down into coastline countries in the Gulf of Guinea. On Wednesday, a military coup in Gabon added to this concern. EU troops are by no means the only European boots on the ground in Africa. Russia's Wagner mercenaries already play a key security role in countries such as Central African Republic, Mali, Sudan and Libya. Recently, a top-ranking EU official spoke of a battle of narratives playing out between Russia and the West in Africa. To explore that idea in more detail, I am delighted to be joined here in the studio by my colleague Crispin Wakideo, Senior Editor with DW's English for Africa service, and via digital link, John Lechner, a freelance journalist and researcher reporting from Central African Republic and Libya, who is one of the world's leading experts on the Wagner Mercenary Group. Crispin and John, thank you so much for joining me. Our topic is this idea of a battle of narratives. So, John, perhaps we could begin with you. Could you perhaps set out for us how that works in terms of the Wagner side of the equation? What happens in terms of narrative when Wagner comes to town?
7: Well, I think thank you again for having me. I think the most important thing to, to note when uh, Wagner comes to town is that a, a lot of the things that happen uh, are the same types of things that happen when any new intervention comes into a country. Wagner certainly does try to you know get involved in the media space where kind of I spend most of my time in the Central African Republic you know they opened up uh, radio stations, they went into other forms of of media social media things along those lines but uh, at, at the end of the day, I think the most important way that people judge wagner is always within the context of the conflict itself
0: I agree with John about the fact that Wagner is definitely very active in, in, in trying to push its its narrative, its its propaganda and agenda in Africa and, and so is the West. But I think that sometimes we we tend to ignore the new narrative that the young African population is trying to to bring into the into play. Uh, we see that in most of these uh countries that have experienced coups, that the young people have come out and 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 they're basically just saying that they're tired of the old way of doing things. There there is also a sense of frustration among the young people. There is a sense of tiredness. They they have endured a lot. And now they just want to to take charge, basically. They just want to take charge and they want to see that their countries are free from any sort of interest. Uh, Yes, they seem now to be leaning towards Russia, we will see how that plays out in, in, in countries like in, in the Sahel. But what is clear, especially on our page, for example, on our DW Africa Facebook page, when we post these stories, is that more and more people are saying, yeah, good riddance. We, we want to just be free. We, we just want to get rid of all uh, leaders who are being seen as puppets. And, and we just want to, to be finally free of colonialism or any links or neocolonialism or whatever you want to call it.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think Va- Wagner uh, ha- has been very effective in, in terms of creating a narrative, uh, which uh, they they have been able to to a certain extent to back up by uh, actually having men who who die in the field actually be actually being uh, tough. And there's a lot of issues of, of human rights abuses and, and things along these lines. But but the the toughness of armed groups is something that's actually quite popular. And so uh, that sense of equality that, that we're in this together to to get rid of armed groups, to to bring territorial integrity back to the country is something that resonates with a lot of people who have, as Kristen said, gone through, you know, in some cases, like in the case of CAR, Central African Republic, they've gone through decades of precarity and conflict, and and they're looking for... Uh, some degree uh, of stability and, and something that they can put pride into, and and a lot of, as Kristen was saying, you know the, the, that's the top-down as, aspect of it. But there's so much that's going on at the grassroots level, that's local. One of the radio stations that 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 Wagner uh, sponsors in the Central African Republic produces a lot of content in Sango. You know, I can assure you that not a lot of Russians speak fluent Sango. And so this is being run by by locals as well, who who are seeing this as an opportunity to move ahead and change their status in life. And as Crispin said, Wagner and and Russia in general, uh, how one perceives them is much more a function of how one perceives your own uh, local security priorities.
1: And I mean, in in terms of these messages, this is really sort of a question for both of you, I think, you know, um, what is it that a Russian message can say that then uh, differentiates itself from other uh, Western European messaging?
0: It's an interesting question, um, because we see that Russia is increasingly positioning itself or pushing itself as a country or the power that never really colonised any country in Africa, but rather actually supported the anti-colonialism struggle. And so even recently, uh, the chief of Wagner was, was filmed somewhere in Africa saying, yeah, we are actually in here in Africa to free you, you know, to actually free you from any sort of shackles. And that does resonate very well because I think a lot more younger people now are aware of the kind of ties that, for example, France had with francophone countries, the kind of ties that other countries, be they, I don't know, Portugal or, or Great Britain, the
7: stranglehold that was still there. One, one of the things that I've always kind of found amusing is that people are surprised that, that Wagner, a private military company, keeps showing up in places where there's conflict. Uh, Va- Wagner, it, it, as, as a PMC, it, it is going to, to search for business in, in conflict zones, they, uh, a country that that peace makes for uh, a pretty poor client for mercenaries. Very often there's a history which goes back to colonialism itself of outsourcing security and outsourcing uh, the public goods of the state to to outsiders who are willing to foot the bill, whether that's UN peacekeeping or, or Western intervention or, or Wagner. One of the more effective ways that you can do that without paying cash out of pocket is to give mining rights, mining concessions, and basically say, okay, you guys provide us security, we give you the rights to go develop the, this Area over here. Sometimes it's not even, you know, in control of the government. So it, it's an especially kind of astute decision for, from the government's perspective to do deals this way. And obviously, with time, the the equity of such deals can, can change. Especially if you know Wagner is able to to take control of the territory and, and to really exploit it. The the gold and the diamonds are not necessarily something exotic, like out of you know a Hollywood movie like Blood Diamond. It's people's way of life.
1: Hmm. And of course, until um, until very recently, um, that whole operation was really concentrated in the hands of one man, Yevgeny Prigozhin. That obviously has changed. Where does that leave Wagner's operations in Africa? Yeah, I think
7: it's something that we're still trying to figure out. And I think at, at at the end of the day, what we're seeing right now is an effort by the Russian Ministry of Defense to bring Wagner kind of back under its wing and back under patronage networks that are are more closely associated with it. And so we might see some changes kind of behind the scenes at the very top um, uh, back in Russia. But but in the Central African Republic, I think we wouldn't be surprised to see the same faces sticking around even if uh, the name on the door shifts.
1: Which I suppose brings me to the question of what, if anything, can the EU offer in terms of a, a counter narrative? Um, we've had the announcement that the EU is to launch a new mission uh, to West Africa. So it's going to be focusing on the Côte d'Ivoire, Ghana, Togo, Benin. Crispin, w- what can you see coming out of th- this mission? What are the goals? What does the EU think it can achieve there?
0: Well, <laughs> there are two things here. The EU wants to say that it wants to prevent the the wave of jihadism that is spreading across the Sahel, you know, moving further down to the coastal countries, which is definitely a very noble idea. And at the same time, they also want to sort of counter the the, the Russian influence, the Wagner wave. Also, I just don't know. I just think that it's coming a little bit to... I think the timing is a little bit tricky. You have a region which is pretty much asking the West to leave. The EU, you know, they've been told to leave in in Mali. They've been told to leave in uh, Guinea, in Burkina Faso. Uh, So it's actually a very difficult time for for the European Union in this part of Africa.
7: Yeah, I'm probably even more pessimistic. (laughs) The narrative is kind of already lost, but there's also some kind of practical things that uh, Wagner has been able to take advantage of there There was quite a scandal uh, in, in Mali a while back where the EU training mission was training the uh, soldiers using just wooden guns, you know no matter what people think about. Wagner and their record, there's a sense that these guys show up and that they are killed in the field and that they fight alongside and often lead their local partners. And I I think that at the end of the day, the European Union is not prepared to invest that sort of effort, nor are they really prepared, I think, to intervene on behalf of what the governments want them to intervene on. And, And so there's always been this kind of sense that uh, Western interventions dictate the problem to be intervened. It's kind of like the same thing with the Chinese, because the Africans are,
0: are always saying, yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've relied on, on aid, on, on Western aid for, for decades, and we've not seen any development. But the Chinese came, and we're seeing roads, we're seeing bridges, we're seeing airports being modernized. So yes, we are indebted to, to China, but we are seeing results on the ground. And that narrative is what I don't know, the West just doesn't seem to gate that it's not about giving money and giving conditions because people are just tired of that. They just want to see, okay, I'm going to a school that has been built or a hospital or, uh, you know, roads that are, you know, impassable. Now they are passable. You know, they want to see concrete
7: evidence that things are changing. And I think the other issue, too, is that the EU and and I think the West in general, when when it comes to the continent and, and even on Kind of the military side is because it doesn't necessarily want to invest kind of in 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 some of the the, the more difficult aspects so there, there's kind of this always this focus on on training, and at the end of the day, I think you know we're getting to a point where a lot of people are rightly wondering what is it that the EU has to teach I mean especially on these kind of military training missions.
0: It's true. I I was quite surprised when the news of Prigozhin's death broke, and we did some reports. It was shocking to hear how people were were saddened by this news. You know, like they they couldn't believe it. He's not African. He's
7: no. He's 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 very far from African.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and then people were mourning him. You know, like people were really sad that he's he's dead. They they are like, oh my goodness, this is really bad news for us because he was. And I was thinking like, wow, okay.
1: That's really interesting. I'd like to sort of wrap up, but I mean, I, I think what I'm sort of hearing from both of you is a sort of a, a counter-narrative is needed, but it's not going to come from men with guns, right? It's not about boots on the ground. It's about, it's about cash. It's about infrastructure. It's about actually meeting the needs of countries. The EU's got, it's got a, a global gateway programme, so 170 billion worth of investment. Is that helpful? Is that enough?
0: I think Africans are now pretty much aware that they... They do not want to be caught up in this geopolitical struggle between the, the, the EU and Russia or the West and Russia or the US and Russia. They have always been saying they, they want to, to be seen on the same level, eye to eye, not this paternalistic kind of relations that have dictated the past decades. You know, you are Africans and we are coming here and we are, sh- are going to tell you what to do. So they they need to rethink the the their the engagement with
7: Africa. Yeah when I was in Mali and, and kind of asking similar questions to this, you know, one one friend of mine, you know, he just he just took out his his smartphone and said, Look, everybody has one of these now. Anytime uh some EU official goes on and says how Ukrainian refugees in the EU are different than other refugees or, or any other type of kind of rhetoric, that, that gets picked up across the continent. And so people were well prepared to, to look for uh, hypocrisy. And at, at at the end of the day, I think, you know, the EU is going to have to also think uh, hard about some of its own uh, domestic policies as well, its stance on immigration, these types of things which are picked up, uh, I think, across the continent. I think more focus on examining its own history would probably be more beneficial than than any kind of narrative trying to counter Russia and and China, who who just structurally are already at an advantage, not having colonized Africa.
1: Well, so much to think about there and a message that I know that I'll be taking with me as a Europe-focused journalist as well. Thank you both so much for joining me, Crispin Wakadeo, Senior Editor with DW's Africa Service, and John Lechner, Leading Expert on the Wagner Mercenary Group and author of an upcoming book on the subject. It has been a pleasure talking to you both.
7: It was a pleasure. But Thank you. That was a lot. That was a really fun conversation. Hopefully it'll be f- fun for listeners.
1: Now it's with John's warning about hypocritical messaging in mind that we turn to our next story from the Netherlands. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the Netherlands, to its credit and in contrast to many other countries, granted temporary refuge to anyone fleeing the violence, regardless of their nationality. But that policy has now been changed, leaving thousands of people unsure about their futures. Terry Schultz meets one young woman in Amsterdam who is trying to deal with the uncertainty.
5: Mariam Adashoga says arriving in Kiev from her native Nigeria in 2019 was a very pleasant surprise. She'd come on a student visa to pursue a master's degree in computer programming, but what she found was a home.
0: When I got there, I got
3: fascinated with people that are there. The environment was calm and lovely. So I was like, OK, like, I could just start my whole life and continue with my future there. And I never even planned to
5: leave Ukraine. Ukraine felt so safe to me. She lived with ukrainian students studied the language and culture and worked toward her dreams of inspiring other young women to enter the field of programming her personal photographs show a beaming autoshogo with friends at the beach in a cafe clowning for the camera in the streets of kiev but then russia launched a war on its neighbor
3: all of a sudden everything just
5: vanished After February 24th last year, Arashoga left everything behind in Kyiv and fled to the Netherlands along with many Ukrainians. The next month, the European Union launched its temporary protection directive to allow those fleeing Ukraine to have the right to free housing, medical care and education and other benefits. The Dutch government chose the most liberal application of the directive, welcoming everyone who left Ukraine without regard to their countries of origin. That is until now. The government has now decided the roughly 3,000 people who do not have the permanent right to live in Ukraine will no longer be covered by the protection directive as of September 4th. They must leave their shelters and are ordered to leave the country or apply to enter the already overburdened asylum system.
1: I wouldn't say that that is a proportional way to to deal with this. I would say it's a recipe for chaos.
5: That's immigration attorney Lotte van Diepen. She's representing Miriam Arashoga and a small group of other third country nationals appealing for the right to stay in the Netherlands. Van Diepen believes those people initially covered by the directive continue to have the legal right to stay as long as they haven't violated Dutch law or other stipulations in the mechanism. She believes the Dutch migration minister has made a legal mistake. It's not the minister of an individual member state that can decide to end the temporary protection, either for everyone or for a specific group. My clients, they are either working or studying. They, they started building a life here under the presumption that they
6: were allowed to stay here for as long as the temporary protection directive would be applied. The
1: investments that they made in, in their lives here in the Netherlands and their employers and their
5: schools, you know, it will all go to waste if they have to leave. Van Diepen says since it was European Union leaders who activated the directive, they are the only ones who can remove the protections it offers. Some of those affected have organized demonstrations, an online petition and an appeal to the government to reevaluate its decision. But there's no sign that's going to happen. Dutch courts are currently considering whether the government had the right to make this decision, but the final ruling won't come before the September 4th deadline. Mariam Adashoga says she doesn't know yet what she'll do then. You just get to ask yourself, like, is this the future I actually want for myself? Is this actually what the universe has for you? Adashoga says she's just trying to stay focused on the dream she keeps hoping she can one day unpack for good, inspiring more women to become computer programmers in whatever country ends up being home. Terry Schultz, DW, Amsterdam. Terry Schultz
1: is followable on the platform formerly known as Twitter, as indeed are DW's Europe and Africa departments via the DW Europe and DW Africa handles. I'm Kate Lecoq in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe.
7: This is Africa Link, where our correspondents across Africa deliver the stories that matter to you.
1: I'm Cathy Short in Lusaka, Zambia.
2: I am Karim Kamara in guinea Conakry. I am Omar Wali in Banjul, the Gambia.
8: Your voice on Africa,
9: every weekday, Africa Link.
1: The mountainous Central Asian country of Kyrgyzstan was once a constituent republic of the Soviet Union. When the country became independent in 1991, it continued to maintain close diplomatic ties with Russia. Now, though, in the light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some historians within the country are calling for a reassessment of how Kyrgyzstan's national history is taught and remembered. Levi Bridges reports.
9: On a bright summer afternoon, waves lapped the shore of Kul, a large lake in northern Kyrgyzstan. Families wade in the water along sandy beaches below snow-capped mountains. It's an idyllic vacation spot. But in August 1916, when Kyrgyzstan was part of the Russian Empire, a really dark chapter of history unfolded here. That summer, Russian authorities announced a draft to send Central Asians to support Russia in the First World War. Locals rebelled, and the Russians killed thousands of them to suppress the uprising.
8: <laughs> Russia's
9: aggression in the region is still remembered in popular culture like this Hollywood-style movie about the bloody 1916 uprising that was released in Kyrgyzstan during the 100-year anniversary of the event. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has motivated many people in former Soviet countries, like Kyrgyzstan, to take a deeper look at Russia's role in their past. The war has also inspired scholars who teach the region's history to focus their curriculum less on Russia and more on areas once colonized by Russia, like Ukraine or Central Asia. And some are drawing parallels between the current conflict in Ukraine and atrocities carried out by Russia decades ago. Muratbek Imankulov, an author in Kyrgyzstan, says there is a clear connection between Ukraine and what Russia did in his country— back in
6: 1916.
3: The uprising in Kyrgyzstan is just like what happened in Bucha in Ukraine. In both cases, hundreds of people were killed by Russia. These are crimes against humanity. They're the same.
9: Although Kyrgyzstan has been an independent country for three decades, a strong Russian influence remains here. Russian is still widely spoken in Kyrgyzstan. But many also speak Kyrgyz, a language related to Turkish, and most are Muslim. A century has now passed since the 1916 uprising, but painful memories of what Russia did here remain. In the city of Karakol in eastern Kyrgyzstan, I meet 60-year-old Anvar Nanshanlo. He says the Russians came through his grandmother's village during the 1916 uprising killing residents and burning down houses.
0: My grandmother was just eight years old during the uprising. And her little brother was just three weeks
9: old. My grandmother ran away toward the mountains holding the baby in her arms. Along the way, they hid from the Russians in the bushes. His family and thousands of other Kyrgyz people fled. They crossed over the nearby mountains above Lake Issykul into China, where they settled temporarily. At the mountaintops, there are glaciers, everything's frozen, Nanshanlo says. At least 100,000 people died in the mountains, far more than were killed by the Russians. Parts of the mountains where Nanshan family fled are covered in dense forests with tall evergreens. These mountains tower over 10,000 feet. Climbing up them, I can barely even walk more than a minute or so without stopping to catch my breath. If you're not prepared, it is very easy to see how you could die out here. The tragedy that occurred here is called the Urkun. It's a Kyrgyz word often translated as exodus. But Asiel Danyarova, a Kyrgyz historian, says the word Urkun has a deeper meaning.
6: It means running in panic, like horses or some other animals, when they are in a great fear.
9: Talking about the Urkun hasn't always been so easy, because Russia has tried to control the historical narrative about what happened starting during the Soviet period.
6: In Soviet time, there was no almost information in school textbooks about Urkun.
9: But after the Soviet Union fell, Kyrgyzstan became an independent country, and the history books changed once again.
6: Uh, yeah, what, uh, what
9: uh, in an office in the capital, Bishkek, I meet Murbek Imankulov, the author we heard from earlier. He wrote a history book for high school students that includes a detailed section about the Orkun. The book outraged some Russians. Look, I'll show you Imankulov shows me articles written by Russian academics who accuse him of falsifying history. He's even been threatened with legal action for spreading propaganda.
6: They wanted to silence me so other historians would stop their work.
3: They don't want us to study a version of our history that disparages Russia.
9: Legal challenges against Imankulov didn't go anywhere, and his school book is still in print. But others have faced censorship. Historians I talk to say the Kyrgyz government has at times avoided mentioning the Urkun because of pressure from Russia, which is one of the country's key allies and an important trade partner. But every summer, people commemorate the anniversary of the tragedy. On a recent evening, locals in Bishkek gather in an office to watch a documentary about the Urkun. Gulsat Alagos Kassier helped organize the event.
6: Even though our government can't officially recognize the Ordukun, independent organizations are making sure people don't forget what happened.
9: Asiel Danjarova, the historian, says confronting the past is crucial.
6: Up until now, there is a wound. We have to bring the truth, otherwise, it never be healed.
9: Danyadova believes that healing would be an important step in reducing hostilities between Russia and its former colonies. Levi Bridges, DW, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan.
1: And just time for a quick reminder that you can subscribe to our podcast on all the usual channels. Ratings and reviews are also always massively appreciated since they help us to reach more people with our journalism. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Siad Abu Sleiman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in
6: Bonn.